Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 32, where we interview Mr. and Mrs. Planting Our Pennies. I ran a spreadsheet and I was like, wait a second, baby. If we keep doing this for, I don't know, three or four more years, it couldn't be just boat for a couple years. We could be like on a boat forever. What do you think? And yeah, and that was a pretty easy sell. So yeah. basically we figured out pretty <laughs> rapidly. We did the 4% rule. Um, you know, we became part of the FI community. We hit that $300,000 back in, I don't know, 20, 2013, 2014. Somewhere 2014, yeah. Long time ago. And basically we're, we're set, for, set for life now. It's time for a new American dream. One that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going, everybody? I'm Scott Trench. I'm here with my co-host, Miss Mindy Jensen. How are you doing today, Mindy? Scott, I am having just another fantastic day. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. This was a very fun interview with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pop, short for Planting Our Pennies. Yes, I have known the Pops for about five years, as always. I met them at FinCon the financial conference that we attend every year. And I just really love their down to earth nature. Yeah. They, I thought they had a fantastic approach to this and, and we're both kind of starting a very kind of ordinary position, you know, and change their ways to pursue financial independence aggressively. Yeah. And what I like is I like how she said, I never wanted to be financially insecure. And mm-hmm. he said, I never wanted to have this traditional work till you're 80 job. And those are kind of contradictory. If you don't want to be financially insecure, then you need to have a job forever. And I like how they found a way to make it work. Yeah. I mean, it was just like a fantastic, I think, largely repeatable approach to financial independence, one where Mr. Pop was not exactly having a superstar career going into 2008, 2009. And he was able then to kind of jumpstart things and make them work. I mean, he was saying he couldn't get a job at JCPenney. But he could, you know, he was able to launch into a sales career and begin to build from there uh, in a really impressive way. Yes, I'm not going to give it away, but listen to what his paycheck was. Yeah. At one point, he got a paycheck that was, let's just say, not small. It was more than his annual salary the year before. <laughs> yeah. For one paycheck. Yep. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, this is relatable to anybody can do this. And that's what they said over and over again. Anybody can do this. There is not a big secret to this. It is not rocket science. Yep. Love it. Well, should we go ahead and introduce them and bring them in? Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. 
When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, huge thanks to today's sponsor. Let's bring in Mr. and Mrs. Planting Our Pennies. Mr. and Mrs. Planting Our Pennies, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having us. Hey, how you doing, guys? It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's, I'm so excited to talk to you guys today. Yeah, likewise. So where, where do you kind of consider the beginning of your journey with money in general? Well, I would say we both grew up very differently with money and kind of wanted different things out of money. I always wanted financial security. And Mr. Pop over here was much more about flexible work environments and jobs. Yeah. So from like day one, my first job was at Blockbuster. And as soon as I figured I could get out of working, I thought that would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, so I've been always wanting freedom. And so that's been the kind of guiding path for uh, for me. You didn't see a lot of long-term job stability at Blockbuster? No, I wasn't that smart to see uh, Netflix coming down the path, but I knew, I mean, the people, the people that I looked up to most, even at that age, they were all entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, real estate developers, and people like that, you know, they weren't grinding away to nine to five. Mm -hmm. And so I just didn't have the kind of role model that, that had that kind of job and I never really desired it. Okay. So what were, what were the kind of resources you were starting your career with then when you had that first job at Blockbuster? Were you, you started from scratch? Did you save up when you were a kid or through college or what was kind of your starting position there? Well, so Blockbuster was when Mr. Pop was in high school. I kind of consider our joint starting together and we got married in 2009. So we also live in Southwest Florida, so I don't know if you remember anything about 2008-2009 in Southwest Florida, but you know, real estate was crashing, Great Recession, financial apocalypse, it was looking a little bit grim. I had a good solid job with a small company that was local. Uh, Mr. Pop didn't have a job, but we still, we got married, we bought a house and got a cat kind of all within the span of about four months. It was a good four months. It was a good four months. <laughs> it, yeah. You know, but at that point, we basically had one good job between us and a net worth of about $50,000 to our names. Yeah. It's not like we started out from a great place. Like, like my wife said, I didn't have a job when we got married. My first job was working for minimum wage. My second job after that, after I got married, was selling phones in a kiosk. Those annoying guys that say, hey, kid, you want a, you want a case for your iPhone? Totally me. So it's not like we, it's not like I had great work prospects. I graduated college with a philosophy degree. So we really did start from just about ground zero. But I think we kind of knew, we always knew kind of where we wanted to end up. 
let me correct you in your story. You started with $50,000 in net worth. That's a little bit mm-hmm. more than most people start with. Being positive, even a dollar is a lot more than some people start with. So you were still yeah. pretty well off, even if you were the annoying sales phone guy. Yeah, we were a couple of years out of college at that point. And before the Great Recession hit, we had both had decent jobs for a couple of years. And even though we weren't married, we were living on separate coasts in Florida. We were both saving up money because we knew we probably wanted to buy a house together. So that was kind of... Yeah, I mean, savings really was critical. So even before we were married, I had a job working in a retail setting for Apple, uh, Apple computer back then, uh, $40,000 per year. And I was still trying to save, you know, $100 a month, $200 a month, $300 a month. So to the marriage, I think I brought maybe $10,000, $20,000 and Bridget bought a little bit more than that. Yeah. I got a really big bonus payout from a job that I quit right before the right before Lehman Brothers fell, I quit my job in the finance industry. Good time to get out. Yeah. <laughs> um, got a really big bonus payout check and then quit my job and have never gotten a bonus payout check that big again. But that was really kind of the start of our nest egg. But before that, I was working like 80 hour weeks. So I kind of feel like I earned that money too. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> Well, gotcha. So then, so that's how you got kind of got into that position of having about 50 K and, and it sounds like this, mm-hmm. this point where you have that 50 K is kind of where you consider your starting the start of your journey in earnest. Is that correct? Yeah, I think we kind of joke about it, but it's because it's when we came, we became a team. Mm-hmm. We officially kind of joined together and then it was the two of us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it happened really quickly too, because it, right around that time, uh, we started thinking, okay, what what do we want the future to look like? And then we kind of stumbled across the uh, FI community. Yeah. We Ooh. got married on a boat, a catamaran. We did. And so the idea of kind of sailing away into the sunset has kind of been part of our, I don't know. Part mar- of our vision since day one. Yeah, yeah marital so. DNA since day one. So, yeah. <laughs> so you said that you stumbled across FI. How did you do that? Uh, yeah, this whole thing's my fault, actually, as it turns out. So my um, one of the jobs that I had uh, after after the cell phone kiosk, I, I got picked up by a technology company into their sales department. Uh, if you're good at it, and I was good at it, you go on these pretty cool trips. So they would send you to Hawaii if you had a good year. So hanging out in Hawaii, not working for a couple of days, had the email turned off. I thought, boy, how can I how can I make this happen more frequently? How can I really make this happen You know, for months at a time? How do I get that kind of flexibility? And I remember I had a BlackBerry back then, and I was actually on the North Shore of Hawaii surfing around on my BlackBerry. And I found two sites, Early Retirement Extreme, Jacob Lynn Fisker's site, and then also Mr. Money Mustache. I think that would have been twenty early 2012. Yeah, that was 2012. So yeah. um, I met up with him on the beach a little while later, and he was like, how, how would you feel if we started saving 50% of our income? And I was like, say what? <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't, it, it wasn't say what it was. It was, you are absolutely nuts. There's no way we're ever going to be able to do that. That's what it was. <laughs> well, well, I mean, it's, it's kind of befitting the early retirement extreme, Mr. Money Mustache personas, I guess, to be discovering them on your BlackBerry in 2012. So kudos to you. <laughs> Seriously, I, I was hanging on to that thing because I was too cheap to buy a new phone. And I think I had some kind of discounted plan, but I was, they were going to pry it from my cold dead. Yeah. Hands. From the days when he was selling cell phones, his plan was actually yeah, really right. cheap. So yeah, we had yeah. kept it. We had kept it on the hopes that they didn't notice he wasn't still selling cell phones. And they didn't. It was nice. It was nice. <laughs> So what was that conversation like? And then what were the changes that you made following that to begin kind of moving more aggressively towards this? 
And did you tell her that you wanted to save 50% of your income because then you don't want to work anymore and you just want to hang out in Hawaii beaches? Kind of, yeah. (laughs) Well, I would say not quite. Originally, he was like, how about just getting a boat and sailing away for a few years? And I was like, okay, I'm the numbers person. I'm like, okay, we need to have enough money to buy the boat. We need to have enough money to fund our 401ks and our IRAs while we're gone because, you know, we can't let savings slide just because we're on vacation. I love that the best. <laughs> so we she, go, she have... goes into like dream crushing mode. She's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We get all these expenses. We need to have living expenses. We need to have all these things. So this is the number. And I don't know, it was like a couple hundred thousand dollars or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was yeah. probably 300,000, but that was super valuable because after you have a goal like that, okay, want to have $300,000, you can kind of start backing out of it. Okay, what do we have to make per year? What does our savings rate have to look like? How do we construct this life so we can actually accomplish that goal? So that was our initial goal, sailboat, sabbatical for a couple of years and that kind of stuff. I think the actions that we immediately tried to take, I was already, I was in a good company and sales is really, really lucrative. It is a grind, but anybody out there who had graduated the humanities degree like me, I heavily recommend sales. I know it's difficult. I know that it's not for everybody. I'm an introverted philosophy major. If I can be successful in sales and get to FI through it, anybody can. The world needs good salespeople. So that's something I did. I, I got better at my job. I increased my earnings power. And we we kind of kept our expenses just around where they were. Yeah. Yeah. We always kind of aim to spend in the $50,000 range. And that was from when we first got married. That was within our budget then. And we just never really increased it that much. We sometimes changed what we spent on I started bike commuting, different items like that, but we didn't really increase the core expenses. I think that one of the one of the early things that we did that still pays dividends is we never linked spending money with happiness. As soon as you link spending money with happiness, you are going straight downhill and it's not going to end up well. But if you never make that link in your mind, you're going to be in a better spot, I think, for the rest of your life. And I think that's that's a big trick for us. That's really brilliant. Okay, so let's go back to this introverted philosophy major. Yeah, sure. uh, Successful salesperson. Do you have any tips for people who want to become a successful salesperson? Is there a book that you read or a like course that you took? Or did you just say, I'm going to do it because I don't want to work forever? I mean, it's practice. The nice thing about sales, it's a, it's a meritocracy. It really, really is. And it's very, very, very easy to get your foot in the door. So initially I had absolutely no sales experience. This was in 2008 or nine when nobody was hiring. I got rejected for folding shirts at JCPenney. I got rejected for absolutely everything. The only people who were hiring was basically the cell phone job. And they were like, yeah, we need people to you know be in our stores and, and push our product. And this is your, these are your metrics. Unless you hit these five metrics, we're going to take away, I think, I could lose three quarters of the money that I made that month unless I hit five different metrics, which I don't remember anymore. It's a grind. It's metrics driven, but it is incredibly lucrative and it will teach you how to be really tough in your career. Were they Blackberry cases or iPhone cases? Yeah, so that was totally (laughs) one of them. I had to do the cases, the screen protectors, the insurance plans, I mean, data plans back then. But what happened was I was working a Saturday night shift that I didn't want to be there for. And a recruiter came in from a technology company, essentially. He said, oh, I'm looking for a BlackBerry. He was looking for people who would be uh, good salespeople for the technology company. So he eventually brought me on big, long, big, long um, process through recruiting to get in to this technology company. But it was because I had had success at this lower level at the retail level. They were able to give me a shot, essentially. 
And from there, you know, after you're inside technology sales, kind of the world is your oyster. You can be, you know, you can handle existing accounts. You can be a business developer. You can jump to even larger, more complicated sales. And it, it's just been a fantastic thing for me. So I highly recommend it. It, it. it breaks my heart for somebody to say, I have an English degree and I'll never be able to catch FI because I have to work at Starbucks. It, it's absolutely heartbreaking because if you have the skills to you know, memorize Shakespeare and you know, all those neurolinguistic connections, you have the skills to be successful in high dollar sales. One thing that I find interesting about sales is it seems like the opportunity to become good at sales almost in a way is exempt. Like, like people that have a good career, 50,000, 60,000, $70,000 a year as an analyst or something like that, or mm-hmm. a mar- you know, marketing, those types of careers, it's really tough to go in and then go into sales where you're your income could be way less or way yeah. greater. But for you, you know, you start you're, you're selling cell phones. So of course, an opportunity to make more sales income is going to be an obvious uh, advantage. Do you see any merit to that thought process that I'm going through here and how would you kind of yeah. encourage someone who's trying to move faster uh, and looking to expand their income who's already making a middle to upper middle class income? So, I look at it from my perspective. We had my income and everything that Mr. Pop made was gravy. Mm -hmm. Like we could live off of mine and everything that he made was gravy. So he could just go out and be risky with his career and do whatever it took. I think that the person, the advice that I would give the person making $50,000, I mean, look, I'm not an expert in marketing. I'm not an expert in very many things, but really if they did want to get into sales, they're essentially scared of losing what they have. And mm-hmm. a $50,000 job is a $50,000 job. And that's a great thing. But basically you can't let that fear hold you back. Sales is lumpy return. I had definitely had some months and quarters where I made absolutely nothing. But I remember the first paycheck that I got the first December after working a full year for this job, it was $35,000. That's what I made the entire last year. (laughs) You got one paycheck for $35,000? It was pretty How do I sweet. Start being a salesperson. Yeah. Hey, yeah. So here's the thing. I mean, it was a grind, guys. But look, I, our FI path wouldn't have been possible without that. So I'm a big fan. Well, and, and, and let's point out though that Mrs. Pop, you were kind of supporting this to a, a degree in the sense that, you know, Mr. Pop, you could go ahead and play to win. I used this phrase uh, last week to, mm-hmm. to describe uh, an investing approach. But basically, you had no downside. You could have made nothing, and you guys would have gotten by, mm-hmm. or you could have made a ton. You know, the base salary wasn't really that important. It was the maximum highest odds potential that you could achieve through your career. Mm-hmm. So it's a critical point for us because yeah, Mrs. Pop is bringing, bringing in, I think in sales, I topped out at about, about 115, 115. I made that for a number of years. Mrs. Pop was making, I think 90 for a number of years. So we had mm-hmm. that baseline salary, but I think it's important because there's a bunch of people out there that can't be computer coders that aren't going to be data scientists that are good with words essentially. And I'm still in favor of that career path. And honestly, guys, my base salary, it was still $45,000 a year when I started. I think it was up to 65 when I left. So again, it's a tough, uh, mentally tough sort of career. But man, for for getting to FI, uh, if you don't have the ability to become an engineer, computer coder, I'm a big fan of it. No, I I had a very similar experience with my transition here at Bigger Pockets. I I was working as a financial analyst making less than $50,000 a year. And then I took a, a slight pay cut to come to bigger pockets, but there was an opportunity to sell and make that extra income. That, <laughs> yeah. that really was a, a big yeah. catalyst in my income front to get me to do that. And it was because I could live completely off the base salary and then everything else was yeah. bonus mm-hmm. on top of that. 
Yeah. The entrepreneurship thing, it was always super, super attractive to me. I think that if I had seen an opportunity for it, I think I would have jumped, but yeah, really similar. It is a meritocracy. Uh, you eat what you kill and it's, it's very exciting for that reason. Mrs. Pop, what was going on in your career during this period? So my career has actually been really boring by comparison, um, <laughs> except for that big bonus payout I took in 2008 before jumping ship. I've been with the same small company, small privately held company for coming up on 10 years. So I've been in more or less the same role. My income has gone up a little bit. It's been steady. And I've really, like I said, I'm the financial security one. It's been more than enough for me. I really enjoy the work. It's intellectually challenging. So even though I've interviewed other places and kind of looked at moving on, I haven't yet. So I think personality wise and talents wise, I think Mrs. Pop falls more into the computer scientist, data scientist, computer coder, engineer uh, type of mind that is super, super common in the FI, FI sphere. It's probably fair. Awesome. So it sounds like you started with around this 50K in net worth. How are you investing this income as it was going up and, and coming into your lives? So we started with real estate. And the main reason we started with real estate is because it was dirt cheap where we lived when we mm -hmm. got married. Yeah. We bought our house that was $131,000. We're a couple miles from the beach in a non-HOA community, smallest house in the nicest neighborhood. It's really lovely, I swear. Then we bought a rental duplex and... After that, the next year, we bought a saltwater lot. But by then, prices had started to get to what we thought were expensive. And so we kind of transitioned to paying off debt from real estate and then investing more in index funds. Yeah, I think that we're pre we try to be opportunistic. We try to be able to have the ability to kind of look at different investments and kind of say, okay, which one are we going to go with now? You know, we definitely looked at real estate as cheap back then. It was 2008, 2009. Uh, it was a great opportunity back then. But we pretty rapidly switched into into just um, super vanilla, you know, Vanguard 401ks. Yeah. Okay. I mm -hmm. like that you said opportunistic. And I think mm -hmm. that one of the keys that I get throughout all of the interviews that we have done is that people mm -hmm. take advantage of what is presented to them. And I don't think that opportunistic is really the right, right word. It has kind of negative connotations, but you're taking advantage of what was there. There were people who were leaving real estate in droves in 2008 and 2009, which is mm -hmm. why you were able to get such smoking hot deals. Can we talk about those deals for a little bit? Of course. Yeah, sure. Okay. First of all, what is a saltwater lot? I live in landlocked Colorado and I've uh, not heard this term. Uh, let us tell you. Yes. So, <laughs> oh, okay. This sounds like it's got so, a good story. So saltwater lot, basically our lot, it's an empty residential lot. It used to be part of a lot that had a teardown house on it. So it's zoned residential, it's zoned single family. But what's cool about this lot is if you're a boater, then it is a 10 minute commute to open water. And that's a really big deal because for people that live on canals and stuff, you can have an hour or more commute to get out to where you want to go fishing and spend your day. This one is unique because it's near town, it's not far away, but it's still got a very short boater's commute, which is why we think long-term, it's gonna be a very good investment. 
one of the things one of the things that we like about that investment is because of different regulations and zoning laws in Florida, you're not allowed to create any more essentially waterfront lots. So there's no more of them. And we think that, you know, that one's going to still appreciate for a while yet. Uh, the area that it's in isn't particularly populated yet. Now, there still are a couple other empty lots. But as those lots get you know soaked up by this great gray wave of retirees coming down to Florida, uh, you know, it'll continue to increase in value. So we like the demographics of it. We understand the demographics of that area. And we also understand uh, some of the laws that kind of make that a, a valuable sort of property. So, so do people drive their boats to your lot and then put them in the water there and you charge them to do that? Is that how you're generating cash flow or is this more of a speculative, this piece of land is going to be valuable before the reasons you just stated? Yeah, it's pure speculation. Yeah. Our, we don't have anything where you can put your boat in. You can take your boat from the Gulf and get it to our lot, but you couldn't put your boat in at you our just, lot unless it was small like a kayak that you could put Yeah, you basically – it's on a canal, so you tie the boat up uh, where the lot is. I see. Okay, I was going to ask how do you access the water. It is technically a waterfront lot in that it yeah. has boating access. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so – what did you pay for this saltwater lot? About 80 grand. Yeah. Okay. And what do you think it's currently valued at? So our guess is right now probably a little under two. Okay. There have been some that sold in that range. And right now some are asking closer to three and they're not getting it. So there are lots that don't turn over very often, but when they do, four-story McMansions go up. So People are kind of willing to pay a little bit of money for them. Yeah. And the reason why we bought that at the same time, that was after we bought our first duplex. So we had a little more money to invest. We thought, well, we can either buy another duplex or we can buy the saltwater lot. And we kind of went back and forth. I was pretty sick of mowing the lawn at the duplex at that point. We were also Um, So remodeling. We did a little bit of remodeling at the duplex. So we said, well, let's just do the lot. I don't know. It's probably not going to be as good an investment as the duplex. We thought it was going to be better, but honestly, a couple of reasons, a couple of things have happened with the local economy and the uh, local school. The college has expanded really, really rapidly near our duplex. So uh, rents are strong and the valuations on that have went up faster than we expected. So let's let's talk about those that primary residence and duplex then. How did you get into those those two properties? So our house... Mr. Pop, he went and he vacationed in Mexico because like we said, freedom, he really enjoys freedom. So he went on a couple month vacation in Mexico and he was like, keep looking for houses while I'm gone and let me know if you find anything. So about a week before I was supposed to fly down there for us to elope because that's where we eloped, I went to see two houses with a realtor that we knew and trusted. One was on the beach, which was thought where we thought we wanted to end up because that, you know, the cachet, it sounds nice, right? You, I live on the beach. Um, even though it wasn't beachfront, it was still on the island they call the beach. And then I saw this <laughs> other one that's a couple miles inland and didn't expect to like it, but fell in love. Fell in love with the neighborhood, fell in love with the size of the house. It's small, but not too small. It had a lake view out the back. The only downside was that it had a pool and we didn't really want a pool. So yeah, it is. So the criteria for that house, I mean, smallest house, nicest neighborhood we could afford. We really took that to heart. I think it's 1100 square feet, single car garage. So I am doomed to ever having a a second car or anything like that, (laughs) but it's been a really good house for us. When you buy a small house like that, the rest of your expenses tend to be lower as well. If you do rehab it, it's going to be less square footage to rehab. Uh, Your heating bills are always going to be lower. Your cooling bills are always going to be lower. 
and you can't fit that much stuff in a smaller house. So I, it, it was a good decision for us and the location was really good. Awesome. I think that, I think that those are all really good points. <laughs> like if you, if you have a nice big house, you have to fill it with nice big things and yeah, yeah. pretty much. So it, that's been a good, that's been a good choice for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've really, we've done remodeling, but we haven't really expanded the footprint. Yeah. So. Yeah. And so this, this was not really an investment. This was a affordable way to live in a nice house, but not something intended to produce investment income for your portfolio. Yeah. Initially, when we had gone house shopping, the first one we put an offer in was a triplex. We didn't end up getting it. It was going to be about a mile away from our house where it ended up. So we knew the town. We knew the general area. Um, The triplex was similar to, I call it similar to what we ended up with. It sold for in the 170s range. And that was above what we thought our price point was. But it was a very similar size house on top, 1,100 square feet with two units on the bottom. One was a studio and one was a 1-1. We didn't end up getting that, but we did end up with an 1,100 square foot house on a lake. The other one was on a lake too. And we ended up with two rental units in our duplex. So (laughs) together we got the duplex and our house for about 181, which is about 10 grand more than what we would have gotten. But we spread the purchases over about a year and a half, which gave us more stability in getting into them and feeling comfortable with them financially. And we also don't have to live on top of our renters. Yeah, I mean, it all kinds of fits together because by minimizing our housing expenses, then we're we're basically putting that money into different kinds of investments. So yeah, it one hand definitely shakes the other. Okay, so you said that the triplex was going to be one seventy one. How much did you pay for your primary residence, and how much was your duplex? Yeah, so our primary <laughs> residence was one thirty one, and our duplex was fifty thousand. Yes. Yeah, yeah. In nice. hindsight, we should have done everything we could to buy like as many of those as we could, but we did. It, yeah, it was weird. We were met, we were against basically. We were leveraged as far as we were comfortable with, and yeah. so I think we did a good thing there. But after having an experience like that, it kind of turns you into a vulture investor because you're like, I made a little bit of money back then, but man, if this thing happens again, if you know the world stops. Spending again, I will just be able to make a killing this time. So it's kind of changes your investing mindset. Yeah. So I want to go back and just repeat what you said. You were leveraged as far as you were comfortable with. Mm -hmm. There are so many stories that I hear about people, especially from this time frame, who lost everything because they were leveraged to the hilt. And then when it came time to pay their mortgages, they couldn't do it because they had nothing in, you know, there was no breathing room. So when they needed breathing room, they just choked. Yeah. yeah. I think living where we lived, we saw it firsthand. It you was know, absolutely it was brutal. brutal. I mean, you would see at the end of every single month, there'd be huge, basically everybody's belongings would be on the street corner because people were getting evicted. People were having to move out of the rental unit because the actual owner was getting evicted. People lost their jobs. Anybody in the construction industry, everything just stopped. It was very, very impactful to us. And so when I say we were leveraged as far as we thought we wanted to be at what we were comfortable with, we paid off the 50K loan within 18 months. Yeah, 18 to 24 months, something like that. I mean, there were so many foreclosures that banks weren't securing them properly. There were squatters. <laughs> I mean, realtors weren't even meeting you out at these properties. Our there realtor were, was like, okay, you guys just go ahead and check out the house. The back door is probably broken into by this point, And let me know if you're interested in putting in an offer. And that's what we did. We were just like, 
I would yell, hey, tax man, anybody home to make sure there was no squatters in the place before going in. Like it was really, really. It, it was so like seeing that. all that firsthand, we never wanted to overextend. So yeah. what, what sort of leverage did you have? Did you put 20% down on your house or did you put more than 20% down on your primary residence? We put 20% down on our house. And then in order to get the duplex, we actually traditional financing wasn't moving fast enough at that point. We were very lucky that Mr. Pop's parents had enough money that they could loan us $50,000. So they loaned us $50,000. We actually drew up a note. It had a balloon payment and interest due every six months. And it was a fair interest rate. It was about the same as what we were paying on our primary mortgage at the time, 5%. And after we bought the duplex, in order to get the lot about a year later, we did a cash out refi on the duplex and we pulled out another about $40,000 and used additional cash that we accumulated to get the lot. So at our maximum debt, we had our mortgage, we had the $50,000 loan to Mr. Pop's parents, and we had about a $40,000 home equity line of credit against the duplex. So that for us, was a lot of debt. It was over $200,000 worth of debt. And so at that point, at that high point, that was around when we really started working together financially. And that was around when that Hawaii trip was. <laughs> and mm-hmm. within a year and a half from that Hawaii trip, we had paid off the HELOC. That was our first priority because it had the highest interest rate. The second priority was the loan to his parents because owing families hard, even though they never held it over us. And we just didn't want it to be weird at all. So we paid it off as soon as we could. Yeah. I don't regret borrowing money from family and we did pay them a fair interest rate, you know, a guaranteed five and a half percent back in 2012. Things were still pretty shaky back then. Nobody knew which way the market was going or anything. So it worked out for both parties. I'm glad I did it and I'm glad I paid it off rapidly. So how did you get a how did you get a HELOC on the property if it already had this debt against it? So the fifty thousand note dollar note wasn't recorded against the land. Technically it was just a personal note. Oh nice. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So that was how we were able to get the HELOC against the duplex in order to get enough cash to buy the lot. Okay. So is that, does that encompass all of your real estate holdings? Is that your, your real estate portfolio? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. We haven't bought anything since 2011. 2012, the lot. No, you're right. 2011. 2011. Oh, man. Um, in Time Southwest flies. Florida, it's just been on a, a very, very fast trajectory. I love the demographics of the area, but we've been, you know, concentrating basically on our, on our jobs and just socking it away into the market. Okay. So I heard Mrs. Pop say index funds. Do you have any individual mm-hmm. stocks or is it all in index funds? We have three shares of Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. is more than enough to enable us to go to the annual meeting every year, which is something we've been doing for several years now and really enjoy. 
So yeah. that's the only individual stock we hold. Other than that, yeah. it's just index funds. And that probably says a lot about our investing styles and how we've pursued the whole FI thing, guys. I mean, we just have made things as boring as possible. If things are simple, then it's much easier to achieve. We don't try to overcomplicate it. That means we have, you know, frees up headspace for other stuff like reading books and listening to music and traveling around. I mean, you really do have a limited amount of headspace. I was listening to J.L. Collins on your show, and he said that investing was one of the few things that where you don't work as hard, the results are better. It's probably the only thing in the world that I think that's the case. So when I see when I see something like that, I'll definitely take the easy path on that. No, I, I think it's a great philosophy, and I, I think that what it does is it allows you to you particular, Mister Pop, to uh, spend your time at work maximizing your income and focus most of your professional efforts there where they actually can produce big results for you in terms of sales. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that's 100%. Like when I was, when I was a sales dog, it's an all encompassing sort of role. Uh, you are in it to win it. You know, the rewards are going to be outsized if you really nail it. So yeah, it does definitely pay to spend that extra time and energy uh, on your job in that case. Okay. So would you like to correct Scott? He said, this gives you more time to focus on your work. Oh, well, What's that? Oh no. No, would you like to correct Scott? No, he's a great guy. Why? No, no. He just said that you can now focus more on your work. You don't what have, have you been work doing anymore, lately? dummy. Oh, yeah, I quit a month ago. <laughs> I see where oh, this yeah. is going. Oh, did you cover that? Yeah, I, I, I don't work anymore. <laughs> Mr. Pop quit his job about a month ago. Yeah, and he's I, very I happy. He's very ago. relaxed. Nice. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Scott. Scott said that leaves you more time to focus on work. I'm like, no, he doesn't have a job. Uh, yeah. Well, well yeah. so does that mean that you hit your three hundred thousand dollar savings number? We actually hit that um, yeah. about 2014, and at that point, I, of course, I'm the numbers geek. I ran a spreadsheet, and I was like, wait a second, baby. If we keep doing this for, I don't know, three or four more years. It couldn't be just boat for a couple of years. We could be like on a boat forever. What do you think? And yeah, and that was a pretty easy sell. So yeah. basically we figured out pretty <laughs> rapidly. We did the 4% rule. Um, you know, we became part of the FI community. We hit that $300,000 back in, I don't know, 20, 2013, 2014. Somewhere 2014, yeah. Long time ago. And basically we're, we're set for, set for life now. It's not that we're never going to work again. I'm going to continue to build stuff and some of it's going to make money, but I just don't have to be a slave to my job the way I was. That's awesome. Congratulations. Set for life. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Set for life. Set for life. What a plug. Good book. (laughs) We know you've heard it before. Cash flow is getting very hard to find. There's always long distance investing, but you may be thinking, I don't have a team, enough experience, or the market knowledge to get in. That's where you're wrong. And it's also where Rent to Retirement comes in. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest out of state with confidence. They've got single family, multifamily, new build, and syndication opportunities across multiple markets. They even have bird deals with immediate equity. Rent to Retirement helps investors learn how to build a bulletproof business plan with the best investment and tax strategies around to help you reach financial freedom through real estate. There's no excuse not to get started in real estate investing when you have the right team and systems already in place. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, 
I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb. And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions? I know it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. So, okay, so you, you bought these three pieces of real estate, but then it seems like really your journey was more influenced by just career savings and investing in index funds to kind of finish it out for the, for the last five, six years. Uh, we've seen good appreciation. So the duplex we bought for 50, it's probably up around anywhere from two to 225 now. Oh, wow. uh, the lot is up to maybe, I don't know. Hi. 
High, high hundreds, hundreds. Yeah. yeah. The house itself. I mean, all we count all this in the net worth. Yeah. We bought the house for one one forty or something like that. One thirty one. Yeah. It's probably up to three hundred now. So, you know, that's a significant portion of our net worth. But above and beyond that, you know, it's like I tell everybody, it's about your savings rate. It's about your savings rate point blank. It's not about the amount of money you make, it's about that savings rate. So Okay, so let's look at your housing cost right now. You have a fairly low mortgage, so I'm assuming you also have a low mortgage payment. What does your duplex bring in versus what are you spending for? Do you have any mortgage on the duplex anymore? No, no, we don't have any mortgage on the duplex. Okay, so does the duplex rent cover your own mortgage? Actually, yeah, I never looked at it that way, but it it does. Yeah. Okay, (laughs) and then, so then that's like, that's kind of a wash. Yeah, that's great. So then you're just working to pay your your bills. Yeah, I mean, it, here's the thing. I mean, I'm there's a bunch of different ways to do this math, and we God knows we have a monster spreadsheet that <laughs> that nobody wants to get <laughs> I into. Can share it with you, that we if can, you want. Sometime. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's a really cool spreadsheet, but there's so many different ways to calculate what is pretty simple, just the four percent rule. Uh, bottom line, you know, our assets are such that we're living off of about four percent, and that's and that's what it is. So yeah. You know, I'm glad you said that because it is so simple. You look at this 4% rule or the Trinity study, which is basically the same thing. Yeah. And it's it's not that hard. You think you need $10 million to retire. And you might if you spend, I don't know, do the math really quick, uh, Mrs. Pop. $400,000 a year. <laughs> if you spend $400,000 a year, then you do need $10 million to retire. But that's also, I mean, if you're spending $400,000, let us sure hope that you're making more than $400,000. So it's still achievable no matter how much you're spending. You just need to multiply it by 25 times. The other thing is I can probably have a lot of more fun on $100,000 per year than they are at $400,000 per year. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> did you – I assume that since you guys are spreadsheet folks, did you um, like model this out a few years ago and were you able to beat your forecast in terms of reaching your $300,000 number and then phi? Yeah. So I modeled it out and basically – We beat it on several different measures. We beat it on income. We beat it on market returns because market returns have been higher. And we beat it on real estate returns, although those aren't really part of our kind of cash flowy model that I have for our early retirement spreadsheet. But when we started beating it by so much on income, we kind of loosened purse strings a little bit and we did two big spend items the last few years of our financial journey that if we were like strictly racing to the finish line, we wouldn't have, but we did a giant home remodel where we modernized our 1985 house and made it look not so 1985. We spent about 30 grand doing that. And Mr. Pop got the car of his dreams a little more than a year ago. <laughs> and that was also in the same order of magnitude there. Yeah, it was like 40,000. So I, um, I think, what yeah, kind ahead. of car is your car of dreams? Uh, it's the official car of the frugal FI community. It's an Acura NSX from oh 1992. <laughs> it's a 1992 <laughs> Honda. It's totally frugal. Everybody that's ever like, I drive a 92 Honda. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Mindy also has one of these. I have a I've 91 heard, Honda. Yeah, <laughs> 91 yeah. Honda. Yeah. yeah, I took a picture of the dashboard for somebody. I was playing a joke on someone and they're like, oh, that's so cool. You have a tape deck in your car. I'm like, yeah, it's not a frugal car. Though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. 
I think that, so part of the psychology, uh, something that you mentioned, Scott, that I want to go back to part of the psychology, of this is, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint, right? And there's going to be times where you don't achieve your goals, uh, a little bit of luck at our back and some hard work. And we hit a bunch of our metrics early, but it's, we didn't always hit all of our metrics early. We did have some setbacks and stuff like that. It's really, really important, especially when you're starting out to not judge yourself harshly about that because nobody's perfect and you, you're going to have to be in this thing for a while. So when somebody's like, Hey, how do I get started with this? Do I need a budget? Do I need this? Do I need that? The first thing I tell them is don't put a budget in place until you just track your spends, uh, track your expenses for a number of months, just track it. Don't judge yourself. Don't judge your significant other. Just figure out what you're spending because combined with the goal in your head that you have, you know, get in a boat, never work again, whatever it might be, your spending is going to lower automatically. So I say, don't put a budget together right away. Just figure out how much you spend and you start to adjust your spending to get to your goals fairly quickly. So be prepared with the, for what happens when you don't hit all of your numbers. No, I, I think that's fantastic advice. And I think what I was kind of getting at with, with asking you guys about your forecast and whether you beat it or not is, yeah, there's challenges and setbacks on there. But it also seems that a remarkable number of people set these plans to move towards FI. And then once they get up, once you see people starting to hit that 30, 40, 50% savings rate, they, mm-hmm. there seems to be a tendency to far exceed the expectations that you model out because people begin getting lucky. They can take an entrepreneurial challenge or in your case, go get that job that might pay a lot of money and might pay nothing yeah. um, and, and yeah. it works out. Or an investment might take off in a way that was unexpected. Um, and it seems like that's like what you guys did is you guys put in your model, you modeled out conservatively, and then you were able to have luck and opportunity present themselves in such a way to accelerate your progress far faster than you planned. It also allowed us to not feel the need to blow it out of the water. We had mm-hmm. the model and even under the model, we are working like four, four-ish more years. Mm-hmm. That's not that long. Like it's just not, if four years versus 40, I'm sorry, it's just not that long. Yeah. So when we had this conservative model, when Mr. Pop was like, well, do I need to go management track management track at his company? It was terrible. It was so stressful. I didn't want him there. He didn't want to be there. And so, yeah, he could have made 50 or 60 grand more a year if he had gone to management track, but together we looked at it and said, we don't need that. It's going to max cut a year off of this. It's not worth it to have three miserable years yeah. versus we know what we're doing now can keep us pretty happy. Yeah. And it's it, only four years. It's weird because that you no know, 30, 40, 50% savings rate, Scott, like it, it's beneficial immediately. Like even if you are not in the place of quitting your job, just having the extra money in your back pocket and knowing that if you lose one income, who cares? If you lose two incomes, who cares? Cause you can survive for however long on what you have. So it starts paying dividends really, really quickly. No, I love it. That's like my, my kind of the way I think about money or at least especially starting out, is in terms of this runway of how long you can last without money. And the goal is to get it infinite, right? Before just oh, yeah. five. Yep. And, yeah. and when you get to that savings rate, and especially the way you guys were doing it, I mean, that was just the amount of time you could survive without an income just probably mm-hmm. skyrocketed over the, every month. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're yeah. right. So where are you headed? Mrs. Pop, you still work. Do you have an end time frame? Do you have a, like a, <laughs> a quitting date or... I mean, not everybody hates their job. I really like mine. I'm not quitting anytime soon. So I like my job. 
but I am not averse to making demands for more flexibility. As you, Mindy, know, I made a kind of demand to my boss this spring where I said, I'm going to work remote in Colorado this summer. How do you feel about that? (laughs) And it wasn't really a question. So don't get too surprised if I start doing a lot more of that or just ask to move to a consulting role. Because if they want to throw some money at me to work for them a couple days a month, 10 days a month, I'm cool with that. Yeah, I think that, look, work is, I think work is part of human nature. If you have what it takes to put together, you know, one point, however many million dollars, you're probably not the kind of person who's just going to do nothing for the rest of their life. And there's some really good office jobs out there. There's some really good, super flexible jobs out there, entrepreneurial stuff. And there's all kinds of interesting things to do. You know, FI or FU, it just means that you don't have to do any one thing. Love it. And that benefit, as you were mentioning, that comes immediately after you make these changes and start saving money, right? Because that flexibility, mm-hmm. the option to yeah. ask for those things mm-hmm. comes up. Like, suppose that things were really bad and really unflexible for you, you could have made that demand and then gone to the next job yeah. at a slightly totally. lower rate and gotten that benefit even sooner. But it, I mean, it, I, at some point I did do that. So in my career, I started out in sales and I didn't stay there. I did it for uh, four years and then I jumped into sales training. And basically it was the same pay for a much, much better job. I didn't have to keep chasing the dollar signs all the way up. I could basically kind of, I don't know, it wasn't like I was taking time off my job, but certainly moving into something that was much more relaxing because I already had you know, a lot of money at my back. Love it. Anything else that we should be asking you about prior to moving into the Famous Four? I don't think. No, you guys did covered it. Nailed it. Okay. Awesome. Hey, everybody. I'm really sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I have news that I cannot wait to share. We have just added a significant amount of perks to our pro membership. We've negotiated discounts for a variety of services, including various discounts on closing costs from several lenders, monthly savings on landlording tools, and even a discount for converting your retirement account to a way to fund your real estate investments. Check out these perks at biggerpockets.com slash perks slash pro. And we're not done. We're negotiating even more discounts to make the pro membership even more valuable to you. Well, this is the new famous four. These are the same four questions that we ask every single guest. There's actually five. Okay. Because that's how you make a famous four. The first question is, what is your favorite finance book? So we've got to do a little bit of a shout out to Mr. Pop's mom on the blog. We call her Mama Pop. She is my lovely mother-in-law. But in our junior year of college, we had been dating for like a month or two at that point. And I see Mr. Pop sitting there on his bed reading Millionaire Next Door. And I'm like, what's that? He's like, it's actually a really good book. You should read it after me. And I did. And this is what dating was like, first, by the way. <laughs> hey, do you want to? <laughs> you should check out this date. book. <laughs> so I yeah, can relate. Uh, I can yeah, relate. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Shout out to mom. Hi, mom. Thanks for everything. But yeah, she gave me that book, Millionaire Next Door. And it's, it's almost, it's like a quaint book now because there's such better stuff out there around FI. But it was the first book to show that regular people could save large sums of money. And I think wealth didn't look like what people thought it looked like, right? The millionaires that were described in that book, they were people who drove older cars. They were people who were wearing, you know, regular clothes. Uh, there were people who, you know, you didn't have to be a famous actor. You didn't have to be a famous athlete or, you know, personality or whatever. You could do this. Anybody could do this. And I think that was something that I really took the heart. Yeah, that's yeah. a great book. Yeah, it really is. 
Yeah, well, it, it was a data-driven approach and a lot of great anecdotes with, I don't know, a lot of, at the time, surprising findings. I guess they're not surprising to us well, yeah. no, not in that, the FI not, community nowadays. But now that 20 years book. later. <laughs> years later, yeah. I think that his daughter's coming out with another one. I think that he passed away uh, five or six years ago, but I think his daughter is still publishing content in that vein. I think she's coming out with a new one soon. I could be wrong, though. Oh, that would be awesome. interesting. Yeah, it would be. All right, what was your biggest money mistake? <laughs> cars. Any any one of the cars that I have owned would qualify as my biggest money mistake. Taken taken as a body of work, they are incredibly destructive to wealth. I mean, it's just there there is you no. Just love them. <laughs> I absolutely love them. Yeah, there's no cheap way to own the kind of cars that I like, and that's kind of one of those things that I probably will continue to bring in money to pursue my passions. And I think the vehicles are going to be one of the passions, but. Yeah, that's probably mine. Well, it sounds you. Made, it sounds like you made your recent purchase from a position of financial strength here. So, I totally did. Yeah, it was it was really really difficult because drawing out forty thousand dollars to spend on what's probably going to be a depreciating asset. That's everything that we did not do. Yeah, Mindy's shaking her head because she owns the same <laughs> no, kind of car. It's going up, uh, but that's just that one car. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, it was really really tough for me to do. And what I thought was actually about my great uncle who always wanted a Mercedes Gullwing, the one they had back in the fifties. And he basically put that purchase off and put that purchase off and put that purchase off until he was actually too old to get in one. And that's finally why he didn't buy it. And I thought, man, he regretted that until the day that he passed away. I'm not going to let that happen to me. So. So yeah, I got it. Certainly no no regrets. All right, yeah. so, so I'm not a car person. I'm, I'm a bike person, so I get the difference between like a good bike and a not so good bike. It's very yeah. different in rideability. But yeah. what is so great about an NSX that makes it so popular amongst, you I don't can, know, at least the people that I associate so with? Beautiful. I was going to say, there's one in the parking lot. You can go to ride it. <laughs> yeah. you Scott. It's, yeah, it's a car. It. It's a car that Honda created to beat uh, Ferrari, to beat Lamborghini, to beat uh, companies like that. And he did for a company like Honda that everybody thinks of as, oh, you make you know, nice, reliable Civics to kind of upend the automotive world. It was really, really impressive. The engineering way ahead of its time. There's some really famous race personalities that are associated with it. And for me, what finally did it, did it was the group of people that own them tend to be really, really down to earth, cool people. I looked at the Porsche forums and it was it was weird. I looked at a lot of different cars, but I kind of fit into uh, into the group, too. And I think it's part of what did it for me. I think it's all a bunch of people my age who saw them in high school and was like, I want to own that so bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they started off at like $60,000. So you could get into this supercar at like an almost normal price. I'll huh. take you for a drive. You'll figure it out. Yeah. It also helps that for non-drivers at low RPM, Scott, they drive like a Civic. So I drive more like a granny and the low RPMs and they're not very hard to drive at all. Oh, so I would enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Go, go, go. Have Mindy take you for a ride. Can you so. drive a stick? No. Okay, then I will I'm millennial. I don't to learn a stick. <laughs> what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? So I would say find a partner who, and this is a little hard to say as opposed to spell out, find someone who compliments you and doesn't compliment you. So compliments like flattery, that's awesome. But what you really want is someone who's complimentary, who fills in your gaps, who's good where you're not, whose strengths are your weaknesses. That I think is, that's the best part about our partnership. He's good when I'm not. Yeah. And vice versa. 
Um, I think for me, so for, for people who uh, don't have the engineering type of mind, they're not going to become computer coders. I mentioned this earlier, sales. It was absolutely a lifesaver for me. And I think just, uh, what, again, when you're starting out, just track your income. Don't beat yourself up if you blow a budget or something like that. This is a marathon. So just concentrate on the tracking and kind of everything else follows from there. Yeah, I love that. We keep hearing budgeting and tracking your income, but I really think that tracking your income is one the one takeaway. Like if you're just starting and you haven't done, like yeah. that comes up so frequently. We hear it almost every week in some capacity or another. The budget, not you know, optional. Some people live by budgets. Some people like like I don't have a budget, but I track my spending. And you yeah. can't even begin moving in the right direction if you don't know where your dollars are going. This thing has to be fun. Like you have to enjoy the ride. Even if you really, really double down on this, it's going to take you at least five years to achieve kind of ERE, early retirement extreme type lifestyle. Five years is way too long to be miserable. You have to maintain, you have to be happy. You absolutely have to be happy. And like fighting a budget every single month, it, it just would have driven both of us nuts. But the tracking was really, really useful. Yeah, no, that is, that is absolutely correct. And I don't have a budget either, but by tracking my spending, I can see Mm -hmm. you know, if I'm starting to veer off course, oh, I guess I shouldn't go. My huge one is going to the grocery store. So I guess I just shouldn't go to the grocery store for a while. We are going to shop out of the pantry and yeah. eat out of the pantry until we get that back on track. And it's, you know, even yeah. if you're not budgeting, you're still tracking it. And that's nobody knows where their money's going. I mean, unless you have some sort of yeah. savant brain yeah. and even then you cannot remember every single purchase and Mindy, not to interrupt, in this day and age, there's no, there's almost no excuse not to track because you've got things like Mint, you've got things like personal capital. A colleague of mine in 2008 was like, hey, there's this cool thing called Mint. You should check it out. And Mint had <laughs> we, already been out for Mint years had, at that point. No, it had been out for, it was still in beta. Was it? Okay. Yeah, it was late beta. But I mean, like we have, we have a 10 plus year history of our spending on Mint because it's just a no brainer. I think, well, it might be a no brainer, but I could see why people would be afraid to. And that's why I say, hey, that's kind of like a judgment free zone, right? Do not judge yourself around what you see at first, because if you judge yourself, it's going to cause, you know, mental angst basically. And, but oh, I don't like this FI thing. I don't like the frugality thing. Lay off it. Uh, make sure your partner lays off it too, because that kind of stuff makes the overall path much harder to, much harder to follow. Yeah. yeah. I, that's some new advice that we haven't heard yet on the show is don't judge yourself. And that's, I think that's a really great piece of advice. I've yeah. never not said, I've never said not to judge yourself. I've, I've always recommended to judge yourself very hard, you know, but, but you can still look at your spending and ask yourself, does this align with my values? Is spending all of this money at the grocery store or the gas station or wherever it's going, is yeah. that going to get me to the FI path that I so desperately want? Yes, yeah. it is. No, it's not. I need to spend the gas money because I have to go into work. Okay, well, maybe mm -hmm. I can move closer or maybe I can ride my bike or maybe I can carpool or there's a lot of ways around this. But if you don't know where it's going, how can you fix it? Yeah. You know, did that spent dollar bring me happiness? Right. And I think that's a your money, your life kind of thing. But basically, until you know what your dollars are being spent on, you're never able to ask yourself that question. I love what you just said, Mrs. Pop, as well, just that there's no excuse. It's so easy. It, you just literally plug into Mint, and every dollar. Like I don't, I don't spend that much cash, but when I do, I list it in like the fun or other category of my budget mm -hmm. overall. And yeah. it's just every expense is tracked, except for maybe a hundred dollars every couple of months when I pull out cash. So, and I mean, it also gets smarter the more you use it. Like mm -hmm. you know, you're like, oh, you're writing a check for this amount every month. Like 
do you always want to categorize that as this? Why? Yes, I do. It's the exact same check I write every month. Please take care of that mental space for me. Yep. Yeah. And Mr. Pop mentioned that not everybody wants to put all of their uh, financial information into the internet because maybe somebody could take it, whatever. You can do this on a piece of paper. I I have a notebook right Mm -hmm. on my island, right as I walk in the door, because that visual is what I need to remind me to write down all of my purchases. I save all my receipts, I stack them up, and I don't go more than two days without writing it down because Mm. if I do, then I get, you know, oh, two days, now it's three days, now it's a month, now it's, and I've forgotten to track my spending for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And to someone who's desperately afraid of not wanting to put it into some sort of internet cloud-based system, so... I have done a lot of research on security in the past. We have very secure passwords, but it is something I'm cognizant of. But I also know I am so much more likely to catch fraud if I've got all of my mm-hmm. accounts in one spot where yep. I can check them regularly. Yeah, that's a great point. Like that's if I have to point. sign into each of them individually, I might not look at one account for, I don't know, a month until I do our you know monthly updates at the end of the month. And the fraud could have been sitting there the whole time. Whereas if it's in Mint, I can pull it up on my phone. And I'm usually in Mint, you know, a couple times a week when I have a minute just making sure everything's getting categorized correctly. So I'll catch it like that instead of letting it go for as much as a month or more. Well, let me validate your point. My husband actually does go into Mint every single day. And uh, well, you've met him. I, I do too. I, I go into Mint every single day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Then I won't make fun of him. Yeah. Um, but he goes in every single day and one day he's in there. He's like, did you put an ad in auto trader? I'm like, really? Oh, wow. No, yeah. I didn't put an huh. ad in auto trader. So he calls up and there, somebody had somehow acquired our credit card number. You just cancel it. And there's one fraudulent charge. There's not 100. And yes, you're not responsible for credit cards you know, credit card purchases, but somebody has your card, they can really make your life difficult. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Mm -hmm. So, and then, yeah, then you do pay more attention right after you find the fraud. Okay. I'm sorry, Scott. Now it's your favorite question. Oh yes. No. What is your favorite (laughs) joke to tell at parties? Okay. So this isn't really a party (laughs) joke. So we mentioned a few years ago, we did some pretty hardcore renovations on our house. And part of that, we, built all new kitchen cabinets. We actually handcrafted the butcher block countertop that went into our kitchen. And so this was a joke that my colleague, he would ask me regularly when we were in the process of building our counter and installing it. He would say, were you a counterfeiter this weekend? Boo. <laughs> no, because you have mint. <laughs> DIY. DIY. Yeah. 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 I liked it. <laughs> it's a it's an accounting and finance joke. I assume that your colleague is an accounting is. finance person. No, it's a yes. countertop joke. It's also a countertop joke. Yes. Have you fit your countertop? Have you fit your countertop? Have yes, you counterfeiter? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I... Okay, I didn't get the accounting part. Like it was it was both. It was both. Why not both? <laughs> okay. Where can people find out more about you, Mr. and Mrs. PlantingOurPennies.com? Nailed it. Exactly. <laughs> that would be the spot to go to. Yeah. www.plantingourpennies.com. There is, if anybody wants to go there, I think that they should probably check out our income and balance sheet reports because it really just tells the story for five, seven years now. Yeah. Since 2012, yeah. we 
have basically published monthly income and balance sheet statements on our blog. So it kind of just shows what we were earning, spending, and how our investments were growing over our entire financial independence trajectory. If somebody just needs to see how this is actually done, that's probably a good place to send them. Yeah. Seven years is a really great chunk of time. Yeah. I think it's great. And I think that one of the things that's so nice about, you know, most of the people that we interview are not anonymous on the show there, you know, but Mm -hmm. with you guys, you guys, because you're anonymous, I I presume you're, you're able to share it all of this right down to the details so people can dive in and see those numbers. Yeah. If we hadn't been anonymous, we would not have had that comfort level with putting these numbers out there because I mean, this is still a weird thing. Like yeah. I hope the FI concept is way more popular in 10 years. I hope everybody's knowledgeable about it and it's a part of many people's lives. But when we started, it was really, really strange. It's more popular now. And it just wasn't something that I wanted to worry about. You know, is my boss going to maybe not give me as good of a, a lead set because I already have a lot of money? Do they wonder if I'm hungry as I was? I just, just didn't want to have to worry about those questions. Yeah. And, you know, another reason that people blog anonymously is because they don't want people asking them for money. Mr. Mm-hmm. Mr. Waffles on Wednesday, when he won that car on the Price is Right, somebody mm-hmm. asked him if they could have it. He's like, well, <laughs> are you serious? That's I awesome. just won this. I didn't win it to give to you. Like, That's why awful. would you even ask that? That's and great. that was like, that yeah. was this one instance. Yeah, I, I just, you know, and even without that, like, hey, you guys have put in years and years of hard work to build what I presume is a one million plus ish portfolio. Like, that's mm-hmm. yours. <laughs> you did that to achieve your dreams and live your dream life and enjoy your early retirement and quit your job four, four weeks ago. That's, and it's not like this was like a bunch of luck or a bunch of good, you know, this was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we did have some luck. Don't, I was going to say, like, no, there's, always, an, there's always some luck like, in there. Yeah. Everyone, yeah. Has, everyone has luck, but it's not just like you were handed this. This was a, you know, mm-hmm. largely yeah. driven by career success and savings rate. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that there's, yeah, there, there's a good reason not to necessarily share all this stuff with the world. If you're not looking to have people asking you to borrow lots of money yeah. or can so, I have the car you just won? Yeah. That was that was so ridiculous. Okay, Mr. and Mrs. Pop, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy days of doing nothing now that you're retired (laughs) to come down and chat with us. I really appreciate your time. It's an honor to be here, guys. Thank you so much for having us. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Mindy. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome. Okay, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. All right, that was Mr. and Mrs. Planting Our Pennies, also known as Mr. and Mrs. Pop. Short for planting our pennies. No one, everyone knows that. That's okay. I'll tell you anyways. Uh, I thought that was a great show and it was a lot of fun. I thought that was a fantastic show. I love them. They're so nice and fun. And they mentioned that they go to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting every year. We actually meet them there and have a nice weekend with them. Just walking around, doing all of the crazy Berkshire Hathaway things that they have available. It's a great weekend in Omaha. Yeah, they had a, a they had an extensive, I think, four year interview process with Mindy prior to coming on this episode of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you're interested in being a guest on the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, it might not take you four years and several trips to Omaha, Nebraska in May to get on the show. You can send me an email at money at biggerpockets dot com and tell me your story.
Yeah. Um, one thing that they, they talked about in this episode that I want to call attention to before we close out is that they post and have their net worth tracked, income and expenses at least, on their website. There is a directory, which we will link to in the show notes here at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow32 over at Rockstar Finance that tracks the net worth of many different bloggers. I think there's like 450 plus bloggers that regularly post their net worth to the internet and that you can kind of follow their journey. And why this might be really helpful is, yeah, go go check out Mr. and Mrs. Planting Our Pennies at plantingourpennies.com, but also check out this directory because you might be able to find somebody who is in your position or is in a position that's really relatable to you and see how they kind of got from where you are today to where they are now. And you can see this at every stage for basically any financial journey. I think the lowest net worth there is you know, negative $800,000 in net worth um, to doctors and then there were like 600, some, something very uh, extreme of debt. Yeah. And there's then there's a, a um, somebody with t- over $10 million in net worth. So if you're in that range, you might find some value <laughs> from this directory. Okay. There are 614, as of today, there are 614 people who are on this list and they range from negative $500,000 at a blog, a very aptly named blog, deeply in debt, all the way up to a $12,600,200. million. Thank you. I don't know why they put the $200 in there from the wealthy accountant. And there's everything in between. There's 5 million, 3 million, 1 million. There's people who are 100,000 heirs and 10,000 heirs. Yeah. There's people who have negative. And I think the, the negative is really important. If you're not starting from a position of positive, it might be difficult to, to read the guy who's got $12 million. But it's not so difficult to read. Uh, Burke does. Emily Burke has a negative $3,967 net worth. Then there's the guy with $1 in positive <laughs> net worth. Go frog dancer from burning desire for oh, fire. Yeah, check that one out. That's going to be so <laughs> fun to watch him go from, I presume zero to now to positive. Yes. So it her. doesn't matter where your state is unless you're over $500,000 in debt, but I bet you could learn from that anyway. It looks like there's a huge range of people that you can find to connect with. Yep. And and our goal here on this show is to help you find stories and situations that you can relate to so that you can accelerate your progress toward whether it's getting out of debt or working towards all out financial independence. And this is a resource that I think will really benefit you if you're looking to find some folks that you can relate to that maybe went through exactly the same or very close uh very closely similar circumstances to what you're going through right now. Right. This is, wow. I have not been on this in a really long time. This is fantastic. Yeah. I just, they, I recalled it earlier when they mentioned that they were checking their net worth and I thought that call this out as a resource for everyone to check out. Right. Oh yeah. And we should also get back to the topic at hand. They tracked their spending for seven years. They have seven years worth of in and out from one person on their website. I think that's really fantastic. And if you want to see what this journey looks like from the beginning to pretty much the end. I mean, he has retired. He doesn't have a job anymore. Uh, go to, and we will link to this in the show notes. I'm not exactly sure what their link is. Plantingourpennies.com. Yeah. If you want to look up that directory, you can just type in rockstar finance blogger net worth into Google and you'll find that. 
We'll also link to it in the show notes. The directory is the URL is kind of complicated to read out here online. Yes. And we will link to the planting our pennies income statements, their income and balance sheet for, I think they have a, a big page that lists them all. So awesome. Okay, Scott, shall we get out of here? Let's do it. Okay. From episode 32 of the Bigger Pockets Money Show with Mr. and Mrs. Planting Our Pennies, this is Mindy Jensen over and out. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.